time of worship together. Uh, as Joe has already mentioned, we are, are wrapping up a series today entitled Daring Faith. And we have spent, oh, the past several months looking at the Gospel of John and in particular talking about the kind of faith that the Lord wants us to have based on his words there uh, in the Gospel of John. And today as we, as we wrap up or try to wrap up all the things we've said over these past few, few months, I'd like for us to go back to the passage of Scripture that we began with it is actually toward the end of John's gospel, but it's John chapter 20. You'll find those words there on the screen, and I encourage you to turn there and follow along as well as we get started here today. And as I said, as we, we're, we're wrapping things up, so we'll just try and get our arms around this wonderful message in the gospel of John and try to have a few, a few takeaway things for us as we reflect on all we've heard here these past few months. But John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, you'll recall we began here several weeks ago. Let's hear now again these words from God's word. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. And John says these are not recorded here in this book. But these are written, listen to this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, you'll remember several weeks ago now, we, we looked at this and we said this is the, the purpose statement in John's gospel. We could say perhaps in any gospel, if you're going, going to write a gospel, this is probably the, the purpose. Matthew, Mark, and Luke would not disagree with that purpose. But he, John is the only one to be so, so specific here. He says, I'm writing that you might believe. And as we noted, his, his actual translation, if you actually translated what John says here in John 20, it, it would sound a little like this in English. He would say, but these things are written that you should be faithing in Jesus, and that by faithing you might have life in his name. Now, of course, that sounds a little strange to us in English, because we don't use the term faith that way. We refer to believing in something, if we try to, to make faith a, a, a verb, but that's actually what John is saying. And you'll recall we said that usage is really important because we might tend to think of faith as something that just remains on the inside. We might tend to think of faith as something abstract, something that you simply possess, but that's not what the Word of God says in the Gospel of John. According to John, Faith is something that you do. And so as we said then, we say again now, in John's gospel, faith is a verb. It's not just something you possess or it's not just the domain of the mind, but faith is active. We said faith, according to John, it's a word that might have a little dirt under its fingernails. <laughs> we said that faith might be a word that it kind of sweats a little bit because it's, it's active, it's engaged, it's not simply an, an abstract concept, but no it's something that you do. So as we just sang, we, we might sing or talk about sometimes what it means for us to live out our faith or to live by faith. And that's certainly one way for us to get our arms around what John is encouraging us to do in his gospel. But we could also turn that. We could put it this way. And this is just a different sort of wrinkle to this. But we might say, yes, the, the, the gospel of John is written so that we might live by faith. But it's also written so that we might faith our life. And those, two, that, those concepts seem to be where John is leading us as he writes. So you'll also remember that first week we said that if, if we're going to talk about faith in the terms that John speaks of it, 
What he's really driving at, he wants us to understand faith as trusting obedience. Do you remember that? So that the, the faith that John is pointing us toward is a faith that both trusts and obeys. So to trust, in, to, to, to faith in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, is to trust in him. But again, that trust always manifests itself in, in a life of obedience. So we're moving from an interior concept into something out here. Again, faith as something that we do. So with all that in mind, let's, let's wrap up this series and let's think about where we've been. Let's think about all these messages we've heard in John's gospel. And what exactly does it mean to trust and obey? What exactly are we talking about? What does it look like if we have this kind of daring faith that John is writing about here? Well, today I just I want, want to share just a couple of the principles that we have discussed over these past few weeks and just remind you of these again as we finish out this series. So what is daring faith? Well, we would begin here by saying that daring faith is submitting to the lordship of Jesus. That's kind of square one for what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is first and foremost to submit to his will. Uh, Several weeks ago, you'll recall, we spent some time looking at the passage there in John chapter 6, all right? And that's where we find the miraculous feeding that Jesus takes part in. He feeds these, these thousands. And we find the next day, John says, that the crowd shows up again. Jesus fed everyone and they left full, but they come back the next day and I, I bet they came expecting another meal. But Jesus doesn't provide them with another meal. Instead, what he gives them is a sermon. And he preaches there in John 6 and he says that I am the bread of life. And the people begin to wonder, okay, when, when are we going to eat? <laughs> but the meal never comes. Jesus just continues to talk, and he says, no, I'm the bread of life. And then he gives this, this teaching. He issues this statement that some people kind of puzzle. They, they, they sort of scratch their heads and wonder what he means. He says, not only am I the bread of life, but, but get this. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life. And it says in one of the more tragic passages of Scripture in in John, but also in the entire Bible, that many of those who were following Jesus turned away. Look here in John 6, 66 through 69. From this time, after he issued that, that statement, from this time many of his disciples turned back. They no longer followed him. Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? We can picture the the crowds, they're walking away hungry, they're walking away dissatisfied, and they they truly don't know what to do with this Jesus, this would-be Messiah who talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so he turns to the twelve and he says, if you're looking for, for an opportunity to leave, here it is. And then look at what Simon Peter says in the next verse. I love this. Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? There's no one else, Simon Peter says. There's no one else, Lord, that we want to follow. Lord, to whom shall we go? And he says this, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So even as others are cutting their losses and and turning and and walking away and, and scratching their heads and wondering what Jesus is all about, Simon Peter steps forward and he says, no, we believe that you are the Christ, that you are the one. And on top of that, he says, we believe that your words 
or eternal life. That in your word there is eternal life. That's why we're following you. So, so Simon Peter gives us this great example of what it means to submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. It is to say what Simon says. It is to say, Lord, in your word we find eternal life. And even if others are turning away and they don't know what to do with all this, eat my flesh, drink my blood, we're going to take our cues from you because whatever you command, that's where we want to be. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means to submit to his lordship. It means to submit to his word and to submit to his will. And many of us, we, we know this, but sometimes church is about being reminded of the things that we need to be reminded of because, you know, it may have been years ago that you submitted yourself to the will of Lord, to the, to, to the lordship of Jesus. Maybe you gave your life over to him years and years ago. But we struggle sometimes with that battle of control, don't we? And to, to accept Jesus Christ as Lord is to accept him as Lord over every facet of our lives. And so we come and we hear these words and we're reminded yet again of what it means to truly follow Jesus, to submit ourselves to his will. So today, we as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, we join our voices together with the voice of Simon Peter. And we say like he does, we believe that your words are eternal life, that you, Lord, have the words of eternal life. That means we take the commands of Jesus seriously. It means that we take our marching orders from Jesus, that he is out in front and we're back here trying to follow his word and his will. There is a, an ancient world military connotation with the idea of lordship. So when we say that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are again saying we're going to take our commands from him and we will follow him wherever it is that he leads us. And you find that same faithful and submissive spirit not just in Simon Peter, but in the other disciples as well. You take Thomas, for instance. We talked about Thomas last week, and we talked about that episode there in John 20 where he is doubting the resurrection. But that's not the only place where Thomas makes an appearance in John's gospel. Over in John chapter 10, we read of an instance where the Jews in Jerusalem picked up stones to kill Jesus. But it's not the right time, and all John says is that Jesus eludes their, 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 their clutches, he escapes there, and he goes along his way. But then in the next chapter, in John 11, Jesus hears about the passing of Lazarus, and so he must return back to that same area. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you might be whispering among yourselves, doesn't Jesus remember what happened the last time we were there? They took up stones, they were going to try and kill him. So they're kind of curious, they're wondering, do, do we really need to go and, and do this? But, but in the midst of that context there, Thomas makes a statement that I find really fascinating. John chapter 11, verse 16, it says, Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now many interpreters look at this passage and, and they want to interpret this statement in light of the, 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 the latter episode, the, the story of, of Thomas doubting. They want to read this earlier passage in light of what we know Thomas is going to say later. So if you interpret it that way, if you know, well, Thomas is a doubter, so he must have nothing good to say here in this scene as well, what inevitably you do is you, you read these words and it comes across as kind of like sarcasm, right? 
Thomas is sarcastically saying, well, all right, guys, I guess we're going to die, so let's just fall in line and follow Jesus to our death. <laughs> they tried to stone him last time. They'll probably get him this time. Okay, I guess here we go. And that's, I suppose, one way to read it, but I, just, I don't think it's the only way. In fact, I don't even think it's the best way to read what Thomas says. I think it might be better for us to read the latter statement in light of the first one. And what I mean by that is this, that Thomas may very well have had an expectation that by following Jesus, he was going to be committing his life to the cause. And it may have been that Thomas understood that as they marched back toward Jerusalem, that this would be the moment when the Messiah would purge the Holy Land, would purge the Promised Land of Roman occupation once and for all. It could be that Thomas thought he was signing up for a military kind of revolution, and he's finally ready to draw the sword. He's finally ready to even spill his own blood for the sake of the kingdom of God. So he goes to Jerusalem following Jesus, fully expecting him to pick a fight. Except that the fight never came. <laughs> At least quite, not quite like Thomas expected. And so it's possible that we then interpret his later doubting as, as his disappointment that the story didn't go the way he thought it would. That his expectation of what Jesus was actually going to do didn't come about and so it leaves him kind of scratching his head and puzzling out, okay, well, now you're telling me he rose from the dead when they just killed him, and none of this is going the way I thought it would. I'm just not so sure about any of that. I think it's possible to interpret that later story in light of this one as well. But no matter where you land on all of that, no matter how you want to interpret these words by Thomas, it doesn't change the fact that he continued to follow Jesus even to the degree that, that he's willing to risk his life. He shows great courage by sticking with Jesus, even when he knows these other people want to take his life. Even if to do so meant the possibility of death, Thomas understood the call of Jesus holistically. That to submit to the lordship of Jesus is to submit every facet of our lives over to him. To follow Jesus wherever it is that he might lead us. It's easy for me to follow the Lord when he leads me where I want to be led is much more difficult to continue following Jesus when he leads me to those places where I might not necessarily want to go. But that is the measure of biblical discipleship. That is what it means to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus. And that leads us into this second point of application, the second takeaway for us as we think about what it means to have daring faith. Not only is it submission to his lordship, but it is also this, it's suffering for his sake. To follow Jesus is just, is, is to be out of step with this world, isn't it? To follow Jesus is to be out of line with the principles and the values of this world. In John's gospel, Satan himself is referred to as the, the ruler of the world. And so to sign up for, for what Jesus is offering is to willingly put yourself at odds with the prevailing values and the, and the customs and the norms of the world that we find ourselves in. And as we've already seen, the disciples, they choose to continue to follow Jesus even when others are abandoning the cause. But Jesus, and especially Jesus in John's gospel, Jesus would, would have us know that following him entails not only a willingness to be out of step with the world, but also a willingness to even suffer for his sake. He talks about this in John chapter 15. 
John 15, starting in verse 18. Again, this is what God's word says. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you, Jesus says, out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, and they will treat you this way because of my name. Because of the name of Jesus, these these disciples are going to suffer. For they do not know, Jesus says, the one who sent me. These are some of the last words that Jesus spoke to these disciples prior to his arrest, prior to his trial, prior to his crucifixion. I'm convinced these are some of the words that would have been ringing in the ears of those followers when they looked out and they saw the crowd coming with their uh, weapons and with their torches. These are some of those last final words that he speaks to those followers. And it has to do with suffering. When Jesus speaks of the world hating his followers... He is, is preparing them, isn't he? He's preparing them for opposition. You see, Jesus is under no kind of misconception that his followers are going to be universally loved. That, that, that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be universally adored and loved by everybody. No, again, t- we understand that the, according to John's gospel, Satan is the ruler of the world. And so we are setting ourselves up in opposition to the one who who is in power in this place to a certain degree. And so Jesus, what he's doing is he's teaching his disciples to expect rejection. In a culture like ours, we, we don't like that word. We don't like the concept of rejection. We certainly don't like the idea of suffering. But Jesus here, in this part of John's gospel, and elsewhere as he's teaching, he, he says as much to them. He says to them, you know, if you're, if you're preaching the good news to, to, in a place and, and people aren't necessarily responsive, here's what you do. You shake the dust off your feet and you move on down the line. You don't say that unless you are getting your, your constituents to expect a little bit of rejection. So toughen up, he's saying. If the world rejects you, hey, don't worry. They're rejecting me too. And if there's a little bit of persecution that comes your way, hey, don't worry. Because as the world treats me, so too will the world treat my followers. Do you know that in all four Gospels, Jesus teaches about persecution? In all four Gospels, Jesus has a word to say about persecution. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, and John 15. Persecution was, was a huge part of the early church's existence. And Jesus he just doesn't want his followers to be unaware of the cost of discipleship. So if being a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, is to be out of step with the world, then, then the question we would ask ourselves today is, how are we suffering for the sake of Christ? How do we suffer for the sake of Christ today? Because our world continues to be opposed to the work of Jesus. Now, thankfully... You and I live in a place where we need not fear for our lives because of our faith. And we give thanks for that. And we should continue to give thanks for that. And, and at the same time, though, we, we have to acknowledge that we are in the midst of, of a fairly dramatic sea change in this country when it comes to uh, re- religious affiliation and how that is understood 
some of the annual kind of polling that's done, you know, year after year, asking some of the same questions about faith and how you, how you live out your faith, show that we are living in a, in a culture where there are more and more Americans, more than ever before, are identifying themselves as either atheist or agnostics, or perhaps you've heard this term, the religious nuns, not N-U-N-S, I don't think that number's growing, religious nuns being N-O-N-E-S, meaning that Americans identify saying, you know, I have absolutely no religious affiliation at all. Those numbers, if they are to be believed, continue to increase in this country. And some of the same polling indicates that there's a growing number of Americans, maybe the same group, maybe not, but a growing number that says, you know, the Bible, the Bible has too much control over our culture. You know, I'm not really interested in, in any kind of law that has anything to do with factoring in what God might say in the Bible. And that, if the numbers are to be believed, it's the world that we find ourselves living in. So I, I say all that to say, you know, our suffering for the sake of Christ, it, it may not be physical persecution. It may not be physical in nature. But maybe the suffering for the sake of Christ we endure has more to do with just the, the, the natural sort of ostracism that comes from a culture that is increasingly adversarial to our faith. That is, is more and more a, a faithless kind of environment. And I bring all that up just to pose this question. Are, are we up to the challenge? Are we up to the challenge of, of being ostracized from others? Because of our, at least in their minds, backward understanding that the Bible would actually be the Word of God. Are we up to that sort of challenge? Are we willing to risk the ridicule that inevitably comes from from being out of step with the prevailing culture? Are we ready and are we willing to suffer for His sake? I know that's not popular. I know it's not. But I had a conversation just this morning in between early service and late service about some brothers and sisters that, that God has brought into our line of sight and into our relationship. And the, they live in a place where physically they are suffering, even right now, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And, and I hear stories like that, and I look at where we live. And you may not like it, this is my opinion, feel free to disagree with me, but I, Sometimes I think we are so soft spiritually compared to what our brothers and sisters have to live with and endure. The question, are are we ready and willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? Whatever whatever form that might take. I think the point that Jesus is making in this text is that daring faith answers yes. I'm willing to suffer whatever for the sake of Christ, because I have submitted myself to his lordship. Finally, daring faith is submitting to his lordship. It is suffering for his sake, but it is, finally, it is sharing in his mission. When you submit to the lordship of Jesus, he puts you to work. (laughs) When you submit to the lordship of Jesus, he enlists you in kingdom work. Uh, toward the end of John's gospel, we find these words where Jesus communicates with his followers in John 20. And he says, peace be with you. He says those words again. 
But then Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, the Father has sent me, and so as the Father has sent me, so too I, I am sending you. We know Jesus came proclaiming the good news. He had this ministry of, of proclamation, and as we read through the Gospels, we find what that, that ministry and what that proclamation, uh, what it sounded like, what the content of that was like. The very first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark, he says, Mark 1.15, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So again, Jesus has this ministry of proclamation. He is declaring the nearness of the kingdom, and he is declaring the necessity of repentance. And after his resurrection, but just prior to his ascension, he sits down with these disciples, and he says to them, he commissions them for this same work, that they too are to announce the nearness of the kingdom, and they too are to, to declare that the, the entry point into the kingdom is the, is the path of repentance. And so today, now, at, by extension, as we read the New Testament, we read those words, we apply them to ourselves, and we say, okay, to dare faith is to likewise share in that mission, to share in that mission of proclamation. Because again, we believe that God has enlisted us into kingdom service as well. So to dare faith is to share in that mission. John himself has dared to believe. He is sold out 100% to the cause of Jesus. And under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, he sits down to write this letter, to write this gospel, to put these words down so that people might come to faith. So that their faith would either begin, so they would kind of initially come to faith, or so that, for like many of us perhaps today, that their faith would be strengthened, that their faith would be renewed by hearing the word of God. But he does all of that because he believes that he has a responsibility to share in the mission that Jesus began. And so too, for you and for me, for those of us who gave ourselves over to the lordship of Jesus years ago, we too have accepted that responsibility to share in the mission of Jesus as well. It is such a high calling to share the good news with other people. But again, it is a high calling that we take seriously because we've submitted ourselves over to the lordship of Christ. We want to take that calling very seriously. Is there someone in your life you could share the good news of the gospel with. And I know there are times when we think about that and we talk about that and then maybe a name comes to the surface or, or maybe there's, there's someone you've been kind of thinking about and praying about, but when it gets to that moment of actually going there, we think, oh boy, I just, I don't know if I want to, I just don't want to come across as being too pushy, you know, how are they going to receive that? And, and I think there's some real spiritual discernment there and, and kind of feeling your way through when the right time is to share all of that. But I, I just know, too, in, in, in my own life, when I say things like, you know, I, I may not, I just don't want to be too pushy. Sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's just code for I don't want to risk anything. You know, sometimes it's code for saying I kind of just like to play it safe. Because to, to open that up, to, to go there and to share my faith with somebody and to have that conversation with somebody, it is to risk something. It is to put yourself out there. And it, it can be a frightening, vulnerable place to be. But I would just remind, if, if any of that connects with your heart and where, where you find yourself, I would just say, let me just remind you, the day that we said yes to Jesus, 
we risked everything, right? The day that I said, Jesus Christ is Lord, I risked it all. It was a Wednesday night at my church. We had a little devotional before Bible class, and we always offered an invitation. And we'd stand and sing after about a five-minute devotional, and, and I responded that night. We were probably this close to like being done with offering those invitations on Wednesday night because nobody ever responded on Wednesday night. It was a Sunday morning thing, but I responded on Wednesday night. And came forward in front of everybody and I said, you know, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they took me in the water and they baptized me. And in that moment, I risked everything. And you did too, whatever your story might be. If you've given yourself over to the Lordship of Jesus, we've risked it all. We've put all of our eggs in the Jesus basket. We've risked it all for the sake of following him wherever it is that he might lead us. So we of all people, as followers of Jesus, we of all people, we should be comfortable with risk because we've risked everything for him already. Someone has said this, and if I could tell you the person who originally said it, I would. It's one of those quotes that's been used so often it's hard to find and attribute the original uh, statement to, to the right person. So I just tell you it's not mine, all right? But someone has said that Jesus is Lord over all or Lord not at all. And I think that's a good place for us to end our study of daring faith. Because the Lord who is over all dares us to give all of ourselves to him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God, the great command says, with everything you have. And then to apply that, then he says the second command to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to dare faith. This is what it means to follow Christ. So would my love for God and my love for my neighbor compel me to share the good news with one person, to share in the mission of Jesus by finding that one individual who might just be waiting for a spiritually meaningful conversation. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Obviously, you have to exercise your own judgment on that, but it may be something just as simple as saying, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I, you may, maybe you know that about me, maybe you don't, but I, I, I love Jesus, and if you ever wanted to know anything about that, I'd be happy to talk to you. There's nothing I want to talk about more than, than my faith, but I don't want to be pushy. That's about as non-confrontational as I, I could possibly put it. And, you know, just leave it at that. See what happens. See if eternity could be impacted just through one simple conversation like that. I'll close by leaving you with the questions that we asked when we began this series. What are we doing by faith? What are we daring by faith? Faith is something that we do. Faith is a verb. So what is, what is our faith in Jesus compelling us to do? And not just that. What is our faith in Jesus compelling us, daring us to do? Where do we need to step out in faith? And risk it all so that someone else might come to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, maybe for the first time, you need to give your life to the Lord. We talked about what it means to to dare faith. It means to trust and to obey. We're going to sing those words together in a moment as we stand. Maybe today for the first time, you need to do that. You need to trust in Jesus as Lord. You need to obey 
the good news of, of the gospel. Maybe today for the first time ever you need to stand before a, a group and, and confess his lordship and put Christ on in baptism. If so, just know he stands ready with open arms. Maybe today there's some things that you need to share with us that we can be encouraging you and praying about for you if that's the case. I want you to know this is a safe place to share that as well. Whatever the case might be, let's dare to follow him. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation. When we walk with the Lord.